Welcome to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Hi, welcome to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. I'm here with my co-host, once again, Rabina Chaudhry, who's um, out there in Fullerton, California. How are you today, Rubina? I'm very well, Phyllis. And how are you from back on the East Coast, right? Right. We both have beautiful weather, I think. So yes, that's, that, that's a wonderful thing. Um, the only thing about... Um, you know, about all this indoor stuff is that um, I can't do the radio show outside. <laughs> That's the one thing that I'm not loving about this when it get the weather gets nice, right? So, um, mm-hmm. but here we are. And, you know, the last few weeks, um, we've had some guests that we've... Um, that we've met through connections. It's such a wonderful thing how these things happen. And and we've talked about how senior connections matter and virtual visits and all of those things. But, you know, we've brought that really into our own connections and to onto the show. So um, a few weeks ago, um, I met somebody through a webinar and and we had him as a guest talking about engagement technology, which was a wonderful thing. That was IN2L. And then uh, through the GoFundMe page, I uh, uh, met our last guest, which talked about a different kind of um, technology for caregivers and in the healthcare space. And through that guest, I met our guest today. Oh, okay. I was wondering where we were going. <laughs> um, he was on, um, uh, Jonathan McCoy was on Alzheimer's Speaks, which is a wonderful podcast uh, hosted by Lori LeBay. And I reached out to her and invited her to be a guest on her our show. And she uh, agreed. I'm so thrilled. So I'd like to um, tell our listeners about Lori and Alzheimer's Speaks because it's such an important topic and it actually goes along with what we're talking about in terms of technology and connections and engagement and all of that. Welcome, Lori. I will surely do that. So Lori LeBay is founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, as I said, which is a Minnesota-based advocacy group and media outlet which creates international impact by providing much-needed education and support for those living with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Uh, Her passion uh, stems from seeing her own mother, who struggled with uh, dementia for 30 years. In 2011, she started Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, believed to be the first radio show in the world dedicated to dementia, and a webinar series called Dementia Chats, where people living with dementia share their experiences and insights. In 2020, Lori launched Dementia Quick Tips, which she herself wishes uh, was available when her mother was struggling with dementia. And in 2011, she launched what is believed to be the first memory care cafe in Roseville, Minnesota. And in 2013, she ignited the fire behind the first dementia-friendly community in the United States, 
in the United States in Waterton, Wisconsin. I'm familiar to, familiar with Wisconsin because I, I went to school out there. Uh, she's also the founding member of the Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team in Roseville, Minnesota. So that's quite a bit. <laughs> and welcome, Lori. We're so proud to have you here with us. Well, thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm just honored that you, you asked me to be on your show. Well, I mean, you're just doing so many wonderful things. And, um, I mean, I gave a little bit of a background, but can, can you tell us how you came to do the Alzheimer's Speaks podcast? Sure. You know, my mom had dementia for 30 years, and I just felt there was such a lack of services, products, and tools. And so I decided to switch careers from residential real estate into this space. And the one commitment I um, was adamant about was I wasn't going to do what everyone else was doing because I didn't think it was meeting the need. And so I wanted to um, approach things which would allow everyone's voice to be heard, from those being diagnosed to family members to business professionals to researchers, advocates, whatever. And I wanted to use different types of modes, so the blog, the podcast. Um, I just thought it was really important to engage people on utilizing multimedia and to let them be able to be part of the conversation. And uh, it just has kind of sprung its own wings um, from there. It's been very well embraced. And, um, you know, there's no conversation I'm not willing to have as long as it's respectful. That's the, the one rule we have with Alzheimer's Speaks. Well, as you say, it's certainly, um, it certainly is an important topic because um, in the U.S., someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's every 65 seconds, and I believe the statistic is let, that by 2050, they expect that to be every 33 seconds. Yep, and around the world, it's every, it's, it's every three seconds. Wow, that's diagnosed. It's and, just incredible. Um, it, yeah, and that's one of the things we try to do, too, is not just be U.S.-based or, you know, I'm in Minnesota, you know, <clears throat> Midwestern-based. There's so much we can learn from others all around the world. So, um, you know, the radio show was something that hadn't been done yet, but like the Memory Cafe, the dementia-friendly movement, all of those things were things that I learned from our European brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, they're just so open to sharing and, and what I found much more collaborative than what we have been in the U.S. Mm. So we're getting better. Is, is, I think it's, uh, wasn't in, in England, now that you said that, that uh, developed the first dementia-friendly community, like, you know, regular community, um, not a dementia community, but, you know, like a, a town that, that became a dementia-friendly community. Was that in England? Well, you know, it's it's hard to track all that stuff because it's so um, it's really so foreign, and not everyone has a voice to tell others what they're doing. <laughs> with <things. laughs> so, I like the Netherlands has uh, you know built the the dementia friendly mm. village, but there are mm. so many different movements. And like I'm involved with the Purple Angel project, which was started by Norms McNamara, um, who's over in. Um, where is he, in uh, Torbay and uh, in the U.K., and he really started pushing dementia-friendly communities over there, 
But then, you know, the Alzheimer's Society has been doing it. Um, there's been a lot done over in Ireland. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. Australia, once you start digging in, mm. and there's so many different approaches all mm. over. In the U.S. here, we have pretty much a, a variety of grassroots um, projects, and then we have something now that's called Dementia Friendly America, which actually was um, piloted here in Minnesota under the name Act on Alzheimer's. And mm. so, you know, there's no, there's no right or wrong to the approach. It's like, let's just get going. Let's get <laughs> done. Um, you know, that's kind of my philosophy. And I, I get a little worried when, <clears throat> when everybody wants everything to be so curriculum-based and so mm. perfect and in a box because every community has different needs and resources and talents. Mm. And I think if you mm. don't tap into those things, you probably aren't going to succeed. You're not going to be sustainable. And so you mm. really have to go where the buy-in is and start there and let it expand and blossom is my thought. Uh, that makes sense. But, you know, I have a, a, a question because your mother had uh, dementia, as you say, for for 30 years. So... You know, people are much more aware of that now. Was it easy for her to be diagnosed? Oh, gosh, no. The first 10 years, in fact, she was told it was her hormones, and we knew it was something else. My mom knew it was something else. She told her doctor, but they just kept poo-pooing it, and then it got to a point where, okay, we really have to push for this now. And then um, by the time they truly tested her, the first, uh, the first time they did a test, it took us three months to get in. And that was after my mom had just had a physical, trying to convince her doctor that something was wrong again. And then we had an episode um, in a family outing that was very obvious. And um, it took us three months to get her in, and all they did was the 10-question the um, quiz. And she happened to have a good day, and she passed. And then after that, it wasn't approachable. And then about, oh gosh, it was probably... Ten years after that, my dad got cancer, and we knew that we needed to get her diagnosed. Things had progressed, and then they did a full battery of two half days. And at that point, we, um, you know, they didn't even tell us in person. Um, they they sent us a letter in the mail a few months later and said, "Oh, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old. Uh, better not let her out of your sight." And by what? Then, they had they had moved up to the lake, and we're living at the end of a peninsula, and so. Yeah, there was no resources. I mean, it just, it wasn't discussed. It was like, just deal with it. And we just, you know, as a family, we kind of kept it to ourselves. My my dad and I, my two brothers really weren't involved. They didn't really want to tell their friends because what do you tell them when you have nothing to, you have nothing to tell them? Right, Other, right. You know, there's there's no way to help. And, you know, sad to say, things haven't changed all that much. In the 36 years now that it's been, my mom's been gone now six years, so 36 years since uh, first diagnosis. Most people around the world tell me it takes them two to three years to still get diagnosed, to get a proper diagnosis. And really? So part of that, yeah. And part of that is because if a person doesn't know to ask to go to a neurologist and they're just going through their general um, practitioner Many of them are not trained well enough to know the difference between maybe dementia and depression, um, mm. anxiety, um, just kind of life changes with retirement, those types of things. It, 
there's, you know, people end up getting divorced sometimes over this stuff, not knowing mm-hmm. that there's a medical issue behind it. And, um, you know, we have to, we really have to get doctors and families trained to ask the right questions and to refer on. And if your gut is telling you something's wrong, you know, keep pushing. Because mm. the doctors don't have all the answers all the time. Mm. Absolutely. That's a lot to take in, right, Rubina? That is a lot to that is a lot to take in. Um, Lori, I mean, you've just dumped a lot on us in, in your personal <laughs> experience, really. Um, what are if we go back to the beginning, what are were some of the first signs that you saw in your mom? That uh, that were indicative that something was off. So she she was very in tune to something was wrong. So she was a proofreader for Deluxe Check, okay. and she ended up creating a three ring binder on how to do her job. And she would carry that back and forth every day because if she got stuck, she could refer to her book on what she needed to do for the next process because she was so afraid she was going to get caught and she was going to get fired for not being able to work fast mm. enough like she I mean she saw the difference in her her executive functioning behaviors um, we saw with driving she kind of pulled back she got lost one time she was supposed to go babysit my brother's kids and she never showed up and my brother mm. got furious with her like why didn't you call where were you and she was too embarrassed to tell him at that time she was lost. She just said she forgot. Mm. And she literally was driving in a whole other area, not even close to his house, and couldn't find her way back. She was driving for like four hours to a place that should have taken her 20 minutes to get to. And um, mm. so then she stopped driving at night. She started pulling back from social interactions, not talking as much. My mom was very social. Um, she would watch the TV and it had to be on channel four and that would drive everybody nuts because people would come over to visit and the guys wanted to watch a ball game or something. And she was just, no, it had to stay on channel four. And what we realized was that that's how she told time. Oh gosh. She could tell by the news anchors if it was morning, afternoon, evening, you know, or bedtime. And, you know, wow. you can get by with that now because they, they flip anchors like pancakes. You know, right. <laughs> and programming and stuff. Um, but, you know, she she didn't cook as much. She didn't, if the phone would ring, she didn't, like, really know what that was. Or if you'd hand it to her, she'd pick it up upside down. Um, there was just a lot of things, uh, you know, mechanical things like vacuum cleaners and microwaves. She didn't know how to use washers and dryers anymore. Um, just, you know, and at first, you know, my dad thought, well, why is she being, she's just being lazy. She doesn't want to do this. And it, it mm. wasn't that. It was that she didn't know how anymore mm. or she didn't remember that it even needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Wow. <sighs> that, that is that is quite uh, uh, quite something. Go ahead, Phyllis. Now, I was going to say, you know, we have just about three minutes or two minutes before our break. Um you know, what? what's one of the things that stand, just one thing that you think stands out to you the most about what you learned about caring for your mother with, with dementia? I learned to live in the moment 
and I learned to be, I've always been pretty apathetic um, and compassionate, but I really learned to look at her differently and accept the new norm, and I realized that it wasn't what I did for her that mattered, but how I did it. And so I used to have this big, long checklist, of, and everything was on it for her, but I realized that some of those things that I thought were for her were really for me to feel better because there wasn't anything I could do. So if I was doing stuff for her, then I was being purposeful. And I had to switch that. I call it, uh, I have a tool that I created called Your Memory Chip that people can download for free. And, you know, and there's a YouTube video that kind of explains it too, but it was really about being a daughter, not losing the relationship, and understanding the most important things that I could do for her was to make sure that she was safe, happy, and pain-free. Hmm. And that, you said that video is, uh, it's called Your Memory Tip? Your, your Memory Chip. T-I-P. T-H-I-P, yep. And I can, I can share that uh, link with people, too, if you'd like. Um, again, they can just go to Alzheimer's Speaks or um, YouTube channel and then put in Your Memory Chip. Um, they'll be able to find that there. I, I'd be more than glad to send it to you guys, too, if that would be helpful. Yes, that that would be good. Um, Lori, we are coming up to our uh, our break. Uh, I must say I did not expect to hear this story in this format, um, and I am truly, truly touched. I look forward to talking with you in the next segment and perhaps learn from you because my mom is right now in a care facility. And uh, we will return to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy on Voice America Empowerment Channel. In the best of times, nursing home residents suffer from isolation and loneliness. Because of COVID-19, senior residents are missing out on connecting with family and friends. You can change this. Video chats help them stay connected with loved ones. You can help to change a nursing home resident's life. Please help us purchase mobile devices so they can stay connected because senior connections matter. Click the banner on the show page or visit GoFundMe.com now and search for Senior Connections Matter. Connecting seniors through technology to make your donation. Phyllis Heyman, the voice for elder care advocacy, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones in short-term rehab, long-term care, or memory care. Her unique knowledge comes from working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. Phyllis's passion for quality care and quality of life for our loved ones sets her apart. She encourages families to plan by choice, not by crisis. Visit phyllisheldercare.info for a consultation. Phyllis is also a speaker for both the public and private sector on various issues related to caregiving, communication, empathy, and aging. Rabina Chantry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of Olive Community Services, a 501c3, which provides culturally appropriate supportive services to seniors, their families, and the community. Rabina's passion for the elder population stems from her experience as an only child living over 1,000 miles away from her aging parents, who are now 91 years of age. She understands the delicate issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org to get further information about Olive's programs and services. 
You are tuned in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email your hosts from the Voices for Elder Care Advocacy show page on Voice America. Now, back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Welcome back to today's episode of Voice on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Um, I'm here with Rubina Chaudhry and Lori LeBay from Alzheimer's Speaks. And we're learning a lot of very powerful information about Alzheimer's. I know, Rubina, you, you're going through this with your mother. And so it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. But on the other hand, um, great to talk to somebody who's, who's been through it. So we were talking about the last question I asked was, um, you know, what is the most, one of the most important things you learned about caring for your mother with Alzheimer's disease, Lori? But I mean, with, well, Dementia is a form of is is a symptom. Alzheimer's is a disease, but um, what do you think was one of your mother's greatest challenges as the as the situation progressed? I think for her it was that sense of losing self, knowing that she wasn't is capable and able to do things that she used to do and that she used to love to do. Um, I think it was trying to hide it from everyone else because of embarrassment. And, um, you know, my mom was real social and she got quiet. And Mm. that was just not who my mom ever was. You know, she was always right in the thick of things and planning and scheming and doing stuff. (laughs) But through that, you know, there was a sadness and then there was a downright anger that comes, which is pretty normal. Mm. But then she got to this really peaceful place of just being in the moment, being accepting, didn't judge things anymore. And... It was just so peaceful to be around her. And sometimes I think as care partners and as as care professionals, we forget to be in their moment. And just like a doctor will tell you when you have a baby, when they sleep, you sleep. You know, take advantage (laughs) of those moments. And we don't do that. You know, we keep chugging along. And she really taught me during that time to... Take advantage of the peacefulness and the calmness instead of letting my mind spin of, about all the what-ifs that I couldn't control. Just mm. to be with her. And sometimes we forget that the safest place for us to be is just next to somebody we love. We don't have to talk. We don't even have to touch. Sometimes it's just being in their presence. And we overlook that because we're mm. so busy being busy. And when mm. you can really embrace that, you you get to this whole other level of unconditional love that I didn't even know existed. You know, I thought mm. I thought unconditional love was okay when I get married, and then unconditional love was when I had a child. But my mom taught me that there were so many different levels of unconditional love as she progressed through the disease, and and there it's almost. It's something I can't even put into words. To me, it was actually like a spiritual or religious process. I mean, mm. it, was, it was that profound, how close you get. Even when you feel like you can't communicate, we're always communicating. Mm. And, you know, three-quarters of our communication is nonverbal, and yet most of us try to force someone to speak. And mm. when you can be quiet, and watch their response, 
or listen to the subtle things, you know, noises that they might make, you'll know what it is they need and what Mm. it is they want. So she taught me to kind of quiet myself and find the peace Mm. within myself. And tune into those things. Mm. Tune into those things. You know, a lot of people, um, I think, associate dementia or Alzheimer's disease, whatever, you know, and as it progressed with with behaviors that they encounter, and they call them, like, dementia pre- behaviors. You know, I, I know uh, you and I, and we've had him on a guest, uh, as a guest, Cameron Camp, you know, always says it's, it's a person thing, not a dementia thing. And, um, you know, I think people... People look at people with dementia or Alzheimer's disease and and think of the behavior instead of just like what you say, just trying to understand that person, you know, mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. Um, you know, our feelings are preserved. You know, people, these are not people who never, who, who never knew. They're people who knew and just don't remember things anymore. So they have a wealth of experiences and what they retain, what we all retain is feelings, right? So we may not have words, but we interpret other people's feelings and we still maintain our own feelings. So I think maybe that heart place is what you're, you're, I'm, I'm getting from what you're saying. Is, is that how, that really how my I'm interpreting is- yeah. yeah, is to really shift people's mindsets to a heart set. But I, I love that you brought up the, the term behavior because our words really matter and a lot of our words need to change. Um, we use that word a lot with dementia. Oh, they're having a behavior. They did this, they right. did that, da, 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 da. And think about it. Be, you know, when someone tells you you have a behavior, that is not a pat on the back because you have a, a great skill set. That is like you're bugging me. <laughs> and and that is very um, derogatory. And think of how a person with dementia must feel when they're told they have these behaviors that they probably can't even control. So what we have to do is really reframe <clears throat> what a behavior is. And a behavior, all the behavior is is a reaction. And that reaction, the rest of us need to use and look at like a clue or a signal because our person can no longer communicate right. what it is that's wrong. And this right. works with kids, this works with adults, this works with everybody. Correct. And when you change that, now you are a helper instead of a dictator and someone scolding somebody. And you start looking for answers differently. Instead of looking at what they can't do, you start looking at what can they do. What is possible? Lori, this is all very, very new and enlightening to me, to the detail that I'm learning from you today. But I'd like us to go back to the diagnosis phase that you mentioned earlier, that Mm -hmm. how it took a long time. What are some of the things that you can share in that phase that our listeners will benefit from learning and what happens when the diagnosis is made? Okay. Well, um, one of the best things you can do is to literally take notes. So if that's on your phone, if that is in a notepad, doesn't make any difference. But when are you seeing these different types of changes in their, in their behavior, in their reactions, in their ability? And um, was there any triggers that you're seeing? Is it a time of day? Is it um, certain people that are around? 
um, you know, who, who asked them maybe to do something, um, those types of things. The more detail you can have, the better. And that will, then you've got kind of proof when you go to the doctor, because sometimes we forget about a lot of stuff that's happened, and it's, it's you know, the proof is kind of in the pudding <laughs> when you have that mm-hmm. proof, when you have, when you have the specifics. And so it might be, gosh, they, they took a shower and they washed their hair three times because they mm-hmm. forgot that they had already washed their hair. Or, mm-hmm. you know, they go into the, to do their grooming, um, but they don't have everything they need or they say they can't find the toothpaste, but it's where it's always been or their toothbrush. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or they went to the store and I gave them a list and they still can't come home with different things. Write those mm-hmm. things down. Or maybe their sleeping patterns have changed. Maybe their mm-hmm. eating patterns have changed. Um, the way they interact with people, all of those things are really helpful. And then if you are not getting the answers that you feel you deserve that aren't matching up, if your gut is screaming something is still wrong and they're telling you, oh, it's old age, you know, it's mm-hmm. menopause, it's whatever it might be, ask for a referral to another doctor. And mm-hmm. ask if you can go to a neurologist. Because in a neurologist that specializes in, in memory issues, um, that is absolutely critical. But the typical process is someone goes in, they'll maybe have them do a 10-question test, they might have them draw a clock. Those are kind of the beginning mm. stages. And, you know, they'll typically ask them, are they having any problems? Well, a lot of people are in denial and they don't see or they don't want to see that things have changed for them. And sometimes family will be very um, overt in how they say that stuff, which then is demeaning to the person and then can cause friction when you get home. So sometimes sending Mm -hmm. information ahead of time to the doctor's nurse so that they can review it and then they can ask questions in general instead of your daughter's saying or your husband says or your son telling us, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not this tattletale thing that's going on, Um, but the information is still disseminated. But usually they, you know, they'll do uh, some simple tests. And then um, a lot of times they'll automatically, you know, give you a prescription. They'll give you another appointment. And then they'll tell you on your way out the door, you know, get your affairs in order. (laughs) And people are living a long time. Not that, you know, we should have our affairs in order when we're 18 years old. That's the bottom line. And so, right, we've had this conversation on this show a few weeks ago, right, Ruby? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. We had elder elder law attorney on. Yep. Yeah. And we have to get over that fear of end of life because none of us are staying here forever, you know, and it's really about smart living. And if they're lucky, they might get a phone number to the Alzheimer's Association, though there are many other associations. There's tons of groups on Facebook. Um, there are um, memory cafes. There are dementia mentors where they can be hooked up with another person who has dementia. There's lots of great, great resources out there. Um, and so, again, if you're not feeling comfortable that you're getting the answers you you need, because a lot of times they'll say it's depression and then they'll give them a little something mm-hmm. to take the edge off. Yes. A lot of their symptoms um, overlap mm-hmm. because, you know, mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're off your game like that, it is depressing. It but is, But that's yeah. not the main issue. 
There yeah. are there medications that are helping slow it down or address it? Everybody is different, and depending on the type of dementia, like with um, if you have a frontal temporal lobe uh, dementia or Lewy body, there are certain medications that you're better. And I'm not a doctor or nurse, so I don't want to mm-hmm. get into that. But there are sure. certain medications that you're best not being on that can cause more problems um, than mm-hmm. not. And so again, you need someone who really understands. Um, right. you know, dementia as a whole, that it's not just memory, it's executive function, it's planning, right. it's, you know, all of those types of things. And um, sometimes a neuropsychologist can be one of the best people to go to because they they have this huge toolkit of, well, if this happens, try this. You know, and they really mm-hmm. work kind of with those reactions that maybe you don't mm-hmm. want and how do you, how do you, you know, how do you adapt um, and and how do you adjust? And you know how do you talk openly about this? And and that to me is one of the most freeing things is when a family can talk openly without judging. What's going I, on? Yeah, I was going to to say that about having a, a conversation. Um, it can be a scary thing for the person. I would imagine when you get that diagnosis, just like if somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's very anxiety-producing, um, and it's the the best thing, and but not necessarily the easiest thing is to have a conversation about it because uh, dementia, uh, none of the dementias, uh, stays where it is; it progresses. And everybody mm-hmm. progresses at a different rate. I think you were, I mean, you, your family was tremendously fortunate that your mother lived so many years. That's not the typical. That um, doesn't mean it can happen. But uh, because I as... I think we're going to see a lot more of it with people being diagnosed earlier. I think we're well, going to see a lot more of it with um, people with dementia being empowered to be advocates. And I personally, and again, I'm not a doctor, but I really think that that helps slow the disease. When when people have purpose and they feel connected, it, it just seems like something else happens in that chemistry. And, yeah, I you know, agree. That's and great. Um, people, I, oh, go ahead. I have a, another question, Lori. That is, you started a memory care cafe. So for mm-hmm. those of us who haven't experienced one, can you tell us about your memory care cafe and what are the services provided and how it functions, please? So it's, it's very, my, my memory cafe is very simple. Some of them have activities and programs, and we were going to do that originally, but our group we listened to, they just wanted to visit. One of the things that happens is that people lose their friends and a lot of family don't come around as much because they don't know how to deal with it. So this is for people diagnosed and typically a family care partner. And they come, ours meets twice a month for a couple of hours. We're doing them virtual now. And it's it's a place where they can have peers, where it's safe Mm -hmm. to be who you are. Nobody's embarrassed. No one has to try to pretend that there's something that they're not. And we mm-hmm. talk about all of life. So if the cat went to the vet and you got a flat tire and the kids came with the grandkids or you went to a concert, all of those things we talk about. And then dementia comes up. We don't have an agenda because when you get together with friends, you don't have an agenda. You go right. where people need to go. You support them. 
um, you know, as the needs are. And then everybody, it's kind of like a baton toss where everybody gets their time to talk, but it's very respectful. We laugh a ton and we all learn just amazing, amazing things mm. about the journey and mm. how to support it. And how do the people come? Do you select them? Do they apply to come in? Do they just show up? The With Memory Cafes, if you go to memorycafedirectory.com, uh, Dave Widrick has um, a directory. It's got five different countries in it now. You can put in your state and find one close to you, and you just call and tell them that you'd like to come. Most of them you know, don't do tests and things like that. Um, most are very open and welcoming. There are some that might want to do um, like kind of a baseline test, but the majority of them don't. Um, some have additional support. Some, like I said, have part programming together, and some of them separate the care partner from the person with dementia. Every group is different, and so it's a nice way to check out what are your needs. And now that many of them are virtual, they don't have to be in your own backyard anymore. You can go mm-hmm. to, to any of them through like a Zoom, uh, mm-hmm. Zoom conference. Mm. Well, this- well, I think we're coming up to the end. Um, yes, so is there something something quick that you wanted to get in, Rubina? Because um, we only have no, one I minute just, left. I was just going to ask Lori, how can people get in touch oh. with her when she just shared the Memory Cafe directory? Uh, what else would you like to share with us and how can people get in touch with you and how can they listen to your podcast? Sure. For, it, for me, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. From there, you can get to the blog, the podcast, the Dementia Chats webinars, um, the Dementia Quick Tips, all kinds of um, initiatives and projects that we have along with if you're looking for you know, a speaker or trainer or consultant, I do that as well. But just go um, alzheimerspeaks.com or they can email me at lori, L-O-R-I, at alzheimerspeaks.com. Well, that's terrific, Lori. Thank you so, so very much. I'm sure the listeners learned so much, and I'm sure people will be getting in touch with you. And, um, you know, we hope, we hope uh, you know, the listeners de- derived a lot of valuable information. I, I, I know I did. I'm sure Rubina did as well. So yes. thanks so much. And we'll be, we'll be back shortly on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy on Voice America Empowerment Channel. In the best of times, nursing home residents suffer from isolation and loneliness. Because of COVID-19, senior residents are missing out on connecting with family and friends. You can change this. Video chats help them stay connected with loved ones. You can help to change a nursing home resident's life. Please help us purchase mobile devices so they can stay connected because senior connections matter. Click the banner on the show page or visit GoFundMe.com now and search for Senior Connections Matter. Connecting seniors through technology to make your donation. Phyllis Heyman, the voice for elder care advocacy, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones in short-term rehab, long-term care, or memory care. Her unique knowledge comes from working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. Phyllis's passion for quality care and quality of life for our loved ones sets her apart. She encourages families to plan by choice, not by crisis. Visit phyllisheldercare.info for a consultation. Phyllis is also a speaker for both the public and private sector on various issues related to caregiving, communication, empathy, and aging. 
Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3, which provides culturally appropriate supportive services to seniors, their families, and the community. Rubina's passion for the elder population stems from her experience as an only child living over 1,000 miles away from her aging parents, who are now 91 years of age. She understands the delicate issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org to get further information about Olive's programs and services. You are tuned in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email your hosts from the Voices for Elder Care Advocacy show page on Voice America. Now, back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Welcome back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. I'm here with Rubina, my co-host in California. I know that was a a lot of conversation for you, Rubina, because you're struggling with this with your mom. You're experiencing it, I should say, and it is a struggle. Yes. Um, And, um, I mean... To hear from somebody who went through this for 30 years um, is, yeah. is, is quite extraordinary and that she's taken that and, and done all these wonderful things for, for people who are experiencing it, people in their families is even more incredible. Um, very, very incredible. And uh, I think it really, really tells us that that there are reasons for what we're doing. And uh, I certainly see her passion. And mm-hmm. I think the reason we are in this space is because of our experiences. I certainly found it very heavy. I learned a lot. Over the last five years, I think the for, for the last maybe three years, my dad had been going through memory loss. And uh, I shared that with you. And right. uh, he he passed away in February. And uh, my mom, for the last maybe two, two and a half years, has been experiencing similar behaviors. And it's been more accentuated over the last maybe six months, more so in the last four months during COVID and after her hip surgery. Uh, to the point where she recognizes me, she doesn't remember, but she's, uh, uh, you know, she's telling stories, she's she's talking, uh, but it's not making sense. Mm. Uh, very little is making sense, and mm. uh, it's very hard for me. Mm. And uh, what I learned from Lori, one of the things is that I need to do things for her. I don't need to focus on the fact that it's hard for me. Mm -hmm. And as I was reflecting during her conversation, I had um, a call with my mom on Saturday. And she was, you know, talking, telling me this story, that story. We must have talked for 10 minutes. I did not uh, really um, understand what she was saying. I don't know if she expected me to understand. But in all this, she was recognizing me and she was even, you know, introducing me to the, the people and the situation that she was, uh, she was in. Uh, so it's, uh, 
it's challenging. But I think I I I felt that I made the the transition to patience on Saturday, which Lori was talking about. Mm. Well, you know, there are so many people that are struggling with this. There are actually um, 15.9 million um, people, family and friends, who are are caring for uh, someone with Alzheimer's disease, which uh, computes, I I looked this up, obviously, which computes to 18.2 billion, that's billion with a B, hours of um, of caregiver time and of unpaid caregiver time, with has, which has a value to our economy of $230.1 billion. Yeah, of unrecognized service. Yeah. Right. Yeah, unrecognized service, yes, yes. Uh-huh. So, it is, so I think, think about... All those people that are, you know, probably experiencing a lot of what you just described. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And, and it takes its and it and it takes its and it takes its and it takes its toll. Um, you know, in other aspects of people's lives, you know, we talked about this and the need to, even though you have to focus on the next person, mm-hmm. you you still have to remember to care for yourself at those times because if you're not resilient within yourself, you won't have the strength to, to care and be there for the next person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's where we had one of the shows where we talked about the caregiver fatigue. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of the initiatives to compensate care driv- caregivers. This is really a huge field, and with the uh, with the number of seniors, number of the people living longer, and there are more older people. Uh, this is really a big big area of concern, and I'm uh, I'm glad that you and I are able to play a small role in bringing this to to everybody's attention and to to our to our own attention. Yeah, absolutely. And I started off by saying about connections and um, how I met Lori, right? One guest through another guest through another person, right? Through another guest. Mm-hmm. And all that to say why I'm bringing it up again is that people should should be open to connections because you just yes. don't know Who's experiencing what, and how, um, and how you can help them, and they can help you. How, in sharing that um, experience, you can gain so much. And um, I think that's so something so powerful for us to remember during these challenging times um, in many um, many areas. Mm-hmm. That uh, no matter what somebody's going through, there there is some similarity in it for you. Um, that, yeah. And, uh, you know, listening to Lori and uh, it's given me a few ideas and made some things clear. You know, what's important is the socializing, the listening to each other. Uh, you know, the content is uh, is not that important. I think it's that connection that's, uh, right. that's important. And um, I am um, actually we're at the point of planning our next year of programming for Olive, as you know, we've briefly talked about it. I think we need to pay 
even more attention to creating smaller groups. Now mm-hmm. that we're doing it virtually, it's easier to do smaller groups of uh, of people communicating with each other, connecting mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, connections rather than connections, just like connections. a vir- like just like a virtual rather than just a virtual experience. Have people actually connect with with each other? Is that what you yeah. mean? Yes, you know uh, what I'm finding finding over the last um, experience of the last uh, three months now of doing online programs is that we are getting anywhere from ten to seventeen to to eighteen people, sometimes maybe eight, and it's really a very nice group. And then our instructor Dan Lane, who we've had on uh, you know from Tai Chi and balance classes, he started. Uh, online class and he's also getting about 10 participants so I'm thinking that maybe that 10 to 15 is a very reasonable number that uh, that we should be looking at creating more opportunities for 10 to 15 people to Mm. get together get to know each other be personable instead of trying to create one large you know, huge group. Uh, that makes sense, um, which yeah. becomes more like, I guess, a classroom experience and less interactive, maybe. Um, yeah, the smaller group is very interactive, and, and that's what I'm sensing, that no. their interaction is is important. Right. No, I, 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 that's, that's what I meant. Although I've been in classes, uh, you know, that RCFE class that I took, there were um, 50 or 60 people in that class. Um, now the purpose of your, your um, program is, is somewhat different, but it was a, I have to say a highly interactive group. Um, People Mm. were talking with each other and, um, and with the, with the person who was uh, teaching the class. So maybe it depends on the content. Maybe, um, maybe that's like a model that you can, um, that you could create, you know, these kind of hubs. Maybe you could, oh, was that the printer? Yes, and it's not controlled by me. My husband, we're working from home, and he's in uh, his office in, in in his office next room. Oh. But the printer is here, and that's the noise of the printer that's coming over. Yeah, the, I, I when I heard it again, I realized it was the printer. No, it's, because I, I don't have control before. over that. I don't have control, but um, I I do have the sign on my door. <laughs> you know, <laughs> recording in progress. But I think yeah, we'll but have guess to. what? He's sitting at his desk and he's not seeing the sign, no, right? So he's, forget you know, it. He's, he's tippy-toeing and being very cautious. <laughs> he's, he's, he's being observant, but he doesn't recognize that the printer... <laughs> but you know that's real life. That's the real life. Maybe you need to put the printer, um, in, uh, you know, on his desk. <laughs> no, I think I just have to tell I mean, him no printing between no, two and three p.m. on Mondays. Right. Uh, I mean, yes. And about in re- recording in progress, you know. <laughs> there is a sign on the door that says recording in progress, and he, he came in to pick up the printing, and it was very tippy toe, tippy toes. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's that. That's the reality of life, you know. Listen, absolutely. That's what's going on now. So what's going on right now. As I was saying is that maybe, uh, you know, there's a a kind of like a model that could be created of these, you know, this Mm -hmm. 
hub of programs, you know, programs with a hub of 15 people. I don't know. It's just a thought that came to my head. Um, and the other thing I was actually going to ask you, Rabina, is if the, are there any people in the group that are uh, having, um, are experiencing any kind of memory loss? And have you seen any difference over the period of time that they've been in their home um, in their participation? Uh, you know, I... What I've seen is that some people who were very regular coming to our live programs at the community center have not come to the virtual program. Mm. Uh, Yes, and uh, we're going to now start an initiative to talk to each one of them. Why is that? Mm. Because they were very regular. And in terms of the memory and that, we are not really able to tell because the people that are participating are very active people. And the ones that were coming there were also, you know, the active adults. So we haven't ventured into this population that that has memory issues so far. But I think this is is really an opportunity, something that uh, you and I need to talk about. Maybe we could do some hubs, Mm. you know, that that we run virtually. you know, and I'm thinking about what she said, and and I've experienced this myself, and I've advised families about this, that obviously if a person is having more memory challenges, actually even people with hearing impairment, they tend to withdraw from social situations. Um, they don't hear what's going on. They don't understand what's going on. They can't respond to what's going on. So, I mean, that would be a, an interesting, I don't know, you know, question to ask in a way, in a very diplomatic way. Is there anything that's that's preventing them or mm-hmm. um, something that they feel challenged by? Um, or whether it's just help with technology. Whether it could be that too. But, uh, you know, a variety of survey questions maybe. Right. I, it was just a thought that came to my head. Um, because that is true, that people do tend to withdraw from these situations, um, which would make sense. Yeah, no, that that is a concern of mine. That I that why have they not come back? Mm. You know why? And they really were enjoying themselves being in the program, and uh, uh, you know. So we will we will find out and we will move forward. But I'm really happy that we are running consistent three days a week program, and uh, getting around ten, thirteen, fifteen people attending. Uh, that, so that's serving. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's really terrific. Um, and that's know, Olive. I, that's Olive Community Services, olivecs.org. Right. We're assuming everybody has heard about Olive. Oh, that's right. We, should, we, we didn't mention the name <laughs> once. Uh, that's Olive Community Services. Olive, www.olivecs.org. Oh, so I'm so glad you said that because I know you're doing some wonderful programming, exercise, live, learn, thrive is your uh, is your tagline, but it's it really is your mission and your purpose. And I know that's the programming certainly embraces all three of those. So I guess uh, with that, we're going to end our program for today on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. So I'm Phyllis Aiming, signing off with my co-host, Rabina Chaudhry, and we'll uh, hope you join us again next week and uh, stay safe and stay well everybody thank you thank you for listening this week to voices for elder care advocacy please join your hosts phyllis amon and robina chandri again next monday at 2 p.m pacific time 5 p.m eastern time 
on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.